Work on the 2023 defense authorization bill is underway this week in the House. A few of the House Armed Services subcommittees released their markups this week. Some of the highlights include oversight of the Joint All-Domain Command and Control Program and a big pay raise for service members. Federal News Network's Scott Bassioni joins me now to talk more about it. Hey, Scott. Hey. Let's start off with Joint All-Domain Command Control and Control, or JADC2. What's new in the bill there? Sure. Well, if you remember JADC2 uh, to begin with, it's one of the hugest undertakings that the Defense Department has done for quite a while, and it's going to change the way that the Defense Department uses its command and control by sharing data and using AI to process and quicken strikes and form troops and use that data to make decisions faster. So, uh, you know, this is obviously something that the uh, Congress and lawmakers are very interested in, and it's important because it's going to be the future of warfare for the Defense Department. However, the Congress does have some concerns about this. It's a really complex undertaking. There's a lot of pieces that need to come together in order to create this capability that you know, DOD is going to be depending on. So this, each of the services have specific efforts that they're in charge of. For example, the Army's in charge of precision fires. The uh, Air Force is in charge of something called the uh, um, Advanced Battle Management System. And so all these things together, they just want to make sure that it's working. What they're doing is asking the general asking the government accountability office to look at the investment plans, the schedule, the cost efforts, and provide really an evaluation of DOD's process for monitoring costs, schedule performance, and all that stuff that we're used to hearing about with acquisition. Um, One of the other things is that they said that this isn't really supposed to be a punitive issue. It's more focusing more on the alignment and the supervision of this to ensure that DOD is on the right track. Interesting. And meanwhile, understand there's also some provisions dealing with the way uh, rank and file employees throughout the department uh, use IT and and specifically the user experience. What's going on there? That's kind of interesting. Not something Congress usually gets involved in legislating on directly. Yeah, well, we don't have too many details at this point. You know, this is only proposed legislation at this point. But if you remember a few months back, there was an employee in the military who just really kind of went off on, uh, you know, how they felt about the slow computers that they were dealing with. And, and the email became dubbed the Fix Our Computers email and uh, was circulated all through social media. Uh, employees were frustrated by these slow computers, and it's something that's uh, not new within the Defense Department. What the subcommittee is asking the Pentagon to do is to contract with a federally funded research center to study poorly designed and poorly performing software and IT systems. And Congress, really, Congress specifically wants to know how many working hours are being lost on a yearly basis because of slow computers? And that eventually that study will make recommendations to reduce those issues and hopefully make life a little bit easier for DOD workers. Yeah, if that viral social media post actually is what influenced this provision and it makes it into law, that was definitely worth the time to sit down and, and write that rant. Um also, on, on, the, on the people front, what, what are we going to see in terms of a, a raise? There was a substantial proposal in DOD's own budget, but it's going to need to be substantial to cover inflation. That's right. And I think the Congress is pretty much on the same track as uh, the Biden administration with this. What they asked for is a 4.6 percent or what they're really dictating is a 4.6 percent 
increase for military service members in for this year. Uh, they haven't said anything about how much they'll really stick with that, though, considering the inflation levels are about 8 to 10 percent right now is what some experts are saying. Uh, Congress does sort of hold that right to change things in the next couple months before they actually end up voting on this bill, and they may actually end up increasing that further. But the 4.6 percent would be a really big increase compared to past years when we've only seen a little over 3% really being the highest in probably the past 10 years or so. Another thing they're looking at is the BAH or basic allowance for housing. Uh, One of the things that they want to do is ask uh, the Defense Department to do a report on the accuracy of BAH. That's something that you've written about many times in the past, Jared. Uh, There's been issues on how this locality pay for housing really stacks up compared to other areas within the nation. And if they're ending up really putting the money where their mouth is on how much it's, it's everything is worth. And, and if military service members are coming out with the right amount of uh, allowance that they should. The rates themselves are one issue. They're kind of all over the place and there's not always an obvious rhyme or reason for why different ranks get what they get in a particular area. But, but I think another issue is it can be, a bit outdated. I mean, for sure, this year, BAH rates are not keeping up with the pace of housing increases. Does does the timing issue seem to be something Congress wants DOD to look into as well? Well, you know, I think that this is a little bit of both timing issue in terms of housing prices are much higher. And we've heard from uh, entities like the Blue Star families saying that they're taking military families are taking a lot of uh, money out of pocket to better their lifestyle because BAH isn't covering everything they want with rent. And then also, to your point, this is something that's kind of been going on for the past couple of years. And I think they've heard those cries about, uh, you know, the unfairness or really the inaccuracy of BAH. And they're kind of dealing it to get uh, dealing with it now. So it seems like it's really just come to a head at this point. All right. And you said DOD and the House are aligned on the size of the pay raise. What about the overall size of the, the military in terms of end strength? Yeah, well, this is probably going to have a lot of debate once this bill comes up to, uh, you know, more votes and things like that. The Army wants to drop its in strength by about 12 percent. They say this is a temporary move to really just save some money while they continue their modernization efforts. Uh, The committee says it's going to go along with that effort. However, they're pretty concerned about it. They want to make sure that the capability doesn't drop. Uh, Now, you know, there have been many people on side of the aisle who want the army and other uh, uh, military services to increase their in strength. So it's doubtful that they're going to go along with this without making their voice heard. And uh, the committee itself, like I said, is concerned about this and writes about that within its markup. So uh, that's something that during the long uh, eventual markup of the full bill, we'll probably see some serious debate on, which is going to be coming in the the next coming months. Refresh our memories on on some of the reasons the military services are are lowering their end strength goals here or the requests for end strength goals here. I think it wasn't just about money, right? There's also a connection to just the difficulty of recruiting. That's right. There are some some issues with difficulty in recruiting right now as well. And that's because really the labor market is stretched thin. Uh, The unemployment right now is just over 3%. And even some of the 
bigger private industries that offer some of the biggest benefits are unable to bring in the people that they're hoping to get. So I think the army and many of the other services are saying, all right, we'll just take a pass this year and hope that the labor market will be more friendly to us in the future where we don't have to recruit as heavily or people are just more willing to come into our ranks uh, for, for that reason. All right. Federal News Network, Scott Massioni, thanks very much. Thank you. And you can read more about this year's NDAA process at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most 
leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.